Welcome to DIA Today, Democracy in America Today. I'm Matt Parks alongside Dave Corbin. Glad to have you with us as we take a deep dive into the ideas behind today's headlines. Dave, how are you? I'm doing great, Matt. How about yourself? Doing okay. It's been quite a interesting last 10 weeks or so here in New York quarantine, but we're hanging in there. What's it like down in Texas? Uh, COVID-19 life here is, uh, is not too different than normal life, uh, which is, is nice for me uh, and nice for the family. We had left uh, California about a month ago, and, and things were getting uh, more heightened hysteria day by day. And uh, it was somewhat unbearable. So certainly the, the move uh, to Texas, uh, Hill Country, Texas, we're in Canyon Lake, Texas, for the summer is wonderful. Kids can play in the backyard. Uh, we can eat brisket, drink beer, uh, and, and have a great time. And, and uh, not to downplay or understate um, the, the tragedy uh, and what's going on around us, but uh, certainly I think it's helped uh, keep us more sane uh, being in a place that's a better, um, better environment or fit uh, for our orientation. Yeah, we've had some challenges, no doubt. We are in a county that is the county with the highest infection rate in the state, with the highest infection rate, and probably most of the deaths you're hearing about in New York have happened within about a 30-mile radius of us. So it has been definitely locked down for us. Um, I haven't left the house too much. Uh, we've been certainly blessed by the fact that we haven't had any illness ourselves and our close family connections and friends, but uh, we certainly know there's a lot of hurt in the near vicinity. And we're eager in some ways, I think, to get back out there, um, but also a little bit cautious, not knowing what that's going to look like on the other side of this, whenever that other side arrives. So here we are launching a new podcast. We've done a lot of things in the past, a lot of writing projects in the past. What do you think about this podcast and what do you hope we'll get out of it? Well, I think we've always had fun uh, conversing about politics and, and culture. Uh, what people don't know is that we often spend a lot of our time talking about sports. So that's a, a great new addition uh, to uh, what we're putting forth there and hoping people will enjoy. And I, I do think that um, this is a great means to, to get uh, writing going again. Uh, you, sometimes when you have a conversation, it leads you to want to put it on a paper and, and think through the idea. And I think that uh, also for me, I, I read the headlines, uh, excuse me, the headlines. And I often uh, come away a little bit depressed because there's not that uh, kind of look backwards at, at this, at these instances in, in world history before how human beings have dealt with challenges. And I think there's a lot of, of wisdom out there, both uh, biblical wisdom, uh, wisdom that comes from philosophic or historical sources from reading history, reading biography. And I think that we often, um, we don't employ uh, those things that we should. So I'm just hoping that uh, people will find this approach history, uh, to history and to the headlines uh, to be compelling. And it'll give people, I think, the most important thing that we need in life, which is perspective. Great. Well, we've named the podcast Democracy in America Today. An obvious nod to Alexis de Tocqueville's great book on American political culture. I've got my copy on the bookshelf behind me. I think I saw yours in the background there. But our plan is. Really mine's, a, mine's a French translation, Matt, as you know. <laughs> of course. 
Yes. That's a good story. We'll have to tell that story sometime because I'm sure the audience will appreciate just how skilled we both are in the translation of French. Uh, Double Winthrop has got some competition whenever we get around to our own translation of the work. Sure. So, yeah. I was saying, in in our next lifetime, uh, because you're kidding. (laughs) Yes, definitely kidding. Um, So our plan isn't, though, to really to comment on to Tocqueville's ideas per se that I'm sure we'll do some of that, but, but rather to apply his method to the American democracy of our day. Uh, he begins his book by uncovering the generative fact of Jacksonian America, the fact from which, as he puts it, each particular fact seemed to issue. And so we're going to try to do the same thing with 21st century America, drawing on our experience teaching the classic texts of political philosophy over the years. And, you know, since, politics, I'm sorry, since democracy in the Tocqueville is such a big idea, really much bigger than politics, uh, that's going to give us a chance to talk about culture and religion and sports and all the rest under this big umbrella idea of democracy. So rather than talking more about it, let's go ahead and do it. Uh, And let's start with some headlines. The lockdown reopened debate continued this week. Uh, But what's striking about it is how much and how quickly we've managed to sort this story along our pre-existing hyper-partisan lines. So rather than thinking about this as as a moment of coming together, it's really just reinforcing the ways in which we're already torn apart. Consider this headline last Thursday from the Washington Post. Here we go. Coronavirus hotspots erupt across the country. Experts warn of second wave in South. Well, it sounds bad. And then you read the first paragraph. Dallas, Houston, Southeast Florida's Gold Coast, the entire state of Alabama, and several other places in the South that have been rapidly reopening their economies are in danger of a second wave of coronavirus infections over the next four weeks. According to a research team, uses cell phone data to track social mobility and forecast the trajectory of the pandemic. So that's not exactly hot spots erupting all over the place, is it? But there's there's a narrative. I was going to say no, not at all. I mean, I, I if I read that article, uh, I'd think that uh, it was coming after me here in Hill Country. But what is that narrative? Well, that's just it, right? So there's a certain narrative that won't really allow us to enjoy good news. It seems at this point. Uh, Rich Lowry had a piece up at National Review today about that. Uh, this week, the spotlight's been on Florida, where Governor Ron DeSantis chose to focus COVID-19 prevention efforts on nursing homes and other elderly communities rather than ordering an early and long-term statewide lockdown. And despite widespread predictions of disaster, the results have been rather encouraging. Uh, The death rate there in Florida is about 1 15th that of the state of New York, and the infection rate is 35th among states, despite the fact that they've conducted more tests than any state but New York and California. I was going to say, that's amazing. Those are, those are amazing numbers. And you, you'd think that if you were reading the news and you were reading of those successes in Florida, you'd want to understand what produced those successes. And if it was possible uh, in your own circumstance to try to replicate them. Uh, and, and that's not happening, right? It's almost as if you want other states to fail. You want um, the, the party that is different than you, uh, that thinks about the problem uh, differently. You want them to be wrong just because you want them to be wrong. And, and, and 
that's one thing when you're playing Monopoly or you're playing a game. It's another thing when you're talking about life and death. Well, that's right. And, and the Babylon Bee really nailed it today. So their headline, of course, this is a satirical website, right? As they, as they have to point out from time to time, as they get fact-checked by the major media outlets. But Babylon Bee headline, Florida ruled to be in violation of science for not having more people die. And inside the, the article, we've got the quote, more Floridians need to die to die for science. Wow. Uh, and I think <laughs> they nailed it. They what nailed else it. is there to say, right? So rather than congratulating the governor, rather than being thankful that the people of Florida have been spared much suffering, we've got to kick the political partisan football around a few more times. Response number one, perhaps the most common response, crickets. All quiet on the humble congratulations front. Uh, Rich Lowry, again, at National Review the other day, asking, where does Ron DeSantis go to get his apology? And I think Ron DeSantis asking the same thing in his press conference last Wednesday. Response two, it ain't over till it's over. Over at Politico, four days after acknowledging that Florida wasn't, quote, a post-apocalyptic hellscape of coronavirus infection and cadavers stacked like cordwood, in an article titled, Florida Man Beats COVID for Now, Mark Caputo hedged a bit further, writing with Bruce Ritchie, Florida throws open its doors and holds its breath. The full phase one reopening is an experiment with life and death consequences. Sure, our past predictions didn't come to be true, but just wait, because the next ones might be right. And response number three, conspiracy. Late on Tuesday, the left side of the internet blew up with a story that was too good not to be true. As the Daily Beast reported, Florida's coronavirus dashboard architect, colon, I was fired for not manipulating data. Now, by Thursday, state officials and others had raised serious doubts about the credibility of the woman making the explosive charge, but you wouldn't know anything about that from the Daily Beast and the others that were reporting it initially on Tuesday. All right, so we've, we've kind of laid out the story here. We've, we've got a little bit of a sense of this hyper-partisan age that we're dealing with and how it applies even in the context of the coronavirus situation. Let's, let's take a step back here and for some perspective, turn to what we're going to call our required reading. So what are you assigning this week, Professor? Well, my favorite reporter of all time is a man named Thucydides who writes a report, so to speak, on a great war that takes place, a civil war between the Athenians called the History of the Peloponnesian War. Probably many of you have have looked at that book, uh, maybe have been assigned that book and said, okay, uh, I'll read uh, the funeral oration of Pericles and and be done with it. But uh, there are other great snippets uh, within the book that really shed light, uh, give a report on the human condition and, and why we do things the way that we do. So the section of the book that I want to assign uh, for this week, uh, this week's required reading, is in book three uh, of the history, where Thucydides takes on the Khoisarian Revolution. And he talks about um, faction uh, breaking out across uh, the Greek city-states, but in particular, uh, how, it, uh, how it displayed itself in Khoisaria. I just want to read a couple snippets from that, uh, that piece. Thucydides writes, The sufferings which revolution entailed upon the cities were many and terrible. Such have occurred and always will occur as long as the nature of mankind remains the same. Though in a severe or milder form and varying in their symptoms, according to the variety of the particular cases. And here are the keynote. 
In peace and prosperity, states and individuals have better sentiments because they do not find themselves suddenly confronted with imperious necessities. But war takes away the easy supply of daily wants and so proves a rough master that brings most men's characters to a level with their fortunes. And I think that's what we're seeing uh, in this coronavirus. Uh, most men's characters are coming to be level with their fortunes, or at least we're trying to produce a scenario or want a scenario where people's fortune is bad and hence their character uh, is, is, is blamed uh, for the choices that they've made. But he also has a couple other things that I think are interesting and tied to what you just said and going through the headlines. He says, words in, this, in these times, in times of revolution, words had to change their ordinary meaning and to take that which was now given to them. Reckless audacity came to be considered the courage of a loyal ally. Prudent hesitation, cowardice. Moderation was held to be a cloak for unmanliness. And here's a nice one for us today. Ability to see all sides of a question, a napness to act on any. So the words change and, and our understanding of people change and our, our wanting to blame our adversaries becomes the defining principle of our age. And what, is it, what are people after an age like this? Well, the Sudis gives an answer to that too. The cause of all these evils was the lust for power arising from greed and ambition. And from these passions proceeded the violence of parties once engaged in contention. Religion, morality, uh, any type of uh, discussion between parties in which they recognize that there's a common good uh, that they ought to aspire to, all of that is cast aside and it becomes a game of who can have as as much power as possible and who can use both in word and deed their power to inflict themselves upon their enemies. So I don't, I don't think, Matt, that we're there right now in the United States in the year 2020, but I do think that we're tending in that direction. The trajectory of the regime is moving in that direction. And, and, and I think the reason why is we've moved into what some have called a post-Republican age, not Republican Party, but the Republic itself and a Republican notion, lowercase r, that there is a common good that we can aspire toward. And yes, there are going to be differences of opinions over taxes and healthcare policy and this and that and the other, but that you work out those differences by making arguments. You work out those differences by having elections. And sometimes you win and sometimes you lose. Sometimes you think one thing and it changes to another. But at the end of the day, your, your goal and your aim in your speech and in your deed ought to be that aspiration toward the common good. So you take that out of the equation and, and what do you have? You have the dogfight that we see in politics today. So I think, uh, I think Thucydides, uh, once again, uh, is, is helpful on many fronts. But in teaching us the dangers of faction, uh, I think he's done a great job in this week's lesson. Yeah, I think about that passage where the words have changed their meaning. And of course, you know, we see that in politics where we've got a word that we use to describe our own behavior and then the identical behavior in the party. That's the opposite side. We've got a much more nasty word to use to describe it. But I think what's even more interesting in the way that he plays that out is that the words that are changing meanings are changing from virtues to vices, right? This is what's What's happening is that vices are becoming virtues and virtues are becoming vices. The extremes, you think about the kind of Aristotelian 
way of framing a virtue between two opposite vices. But now the opposite vices have become the virtues and the position in the middle where the virtue is meant to be, that's, that's no longer something that's admirable, no longer something that we would hold up as an example to others. And this, I think, is, is really instructive for us because, you know, we live in an age where politics is, is so partisan that, that virtue really has lost any meaning. And, and even to stand up for virtue, it seems like such a strange idea. Uh, that we would care about virtue and political leaders, that we would apply categories of virtue to political speech or political proposals, uh, at least that we would do that in a way that's not cynical. Right? It, I mean, we, we do that in a way that um, perhaps allows us to reject the ideas of others, but we've got so much latitude for people on our side that we're not really serious when we use these moral categories. Let's Let's maybe talk more about this idea of revolution because – you know, I guess if I were to look around and I would say, well, 1776, yeah, I get that. That's a revolution. 1860, 1861, there's something like a revolution going on there. In what sense are we in the middle of a revolution or a pre-revolution today? Well, the revolution that, that Thucydides is referencing here is, is a little more like uh, what we, the term we would use faction. So the, the logic of, of revolution is a little bit like a, a pendulum swing. So uh, when one side gets power, they try to draw uh, the pendulum up as high as it can be on their side, but then they suffer a loss and the pendulum continues to swing more and more out of control. And that stability or peace, if, if that pendulum wasn't swinging as high as it was, that, that you want in life, right? We're, we, we want to live in peace and we want to have a notion of a shared peace. And if both sides are tugging away from that shared peace because they'd rather have war and power than peace, then all you get is a swinging uh, back and forth. So that, that, I think that's, the, that's, that's what he's talking about there uh, applied to our day. And I would say that um, the, the question for us, and I think this show is part of what we're trying to do on this front, is there a way to talk about our differences, not, not do away with our differences because we're going to have different opinions. Is there a way to talk about our differences and to celebrate our differences and to actually celebrate a good argument when a good argument's made, even if it's not an argument that we wholeheartedly agree with? Is there a way uh, to see in something that is being presented by another that there could be a movement towards the common good in that argument and to want to encourage that. I think, I mean, both you and I are teachers, right? So uh, our, our goal in the classroom is not to brainwash uh, kids. It's not to indoctrinate them. It's to teach them how to think more critically. Uh, and they're going to come into that class with their own political persuasions, but we don't want them to be stupid partisans. We don't want them to be small uh, partisans. Uh, we want them to be grand partisans. So that what I'm suggesting here is that um, philosophy and political philosophy can make partisanship better if what we require of the partisans is that they make better arguments. And so we judge whether those arguments are good and bad. And, and you and I are, are not perfect. You and I uh, make wrong judgments. Uh, we're, we're just like everyone else. But I think bringing back into the discourse kind of an assessment of whether or not something is tending towards the common good or not uh, is incredibly important. And to tell you the truth, Matt, and, and you know, I, I did this when I was at the King's College when we were both there, 
I take kids to Gettysburg and you take them to Gettysburg and you show them, you know, what happened uh, in that uh, horrible battle where 8,000 uh, men died in 54 minutes. And you can count your way to that 8,000, two, four, six, eight, ten. that carnage right in front of you. But what came out of a difference of opinion? Uh, and that's an end that none of us want. And, and we, we can perhaps joke about it or think, oh, it'd be a great thing. But, but war is not, not a great thing. Death is not a great thing. Brothers fighting brothers is not a great thing. And we ought to be trying to do everything we can to prevent that outcome. Yeah, you know, I, I got a great gift in the mail today from my students in one of my classes, uh, two, two gifts that were connected. So one was a T-shirt that says Lincoln 1860 in the style of a campaign T-shirt. Um, and then the second was a couple of Lincoln cufflinks, which I will wear proudly the next time I'm at a, a major black tie event. But one of the things that I admire about Lincoln and that connects back to your experience at Gettysburg is the way that Lincoln was able and willing to take seriously the argument of the other side. And even when that would perhaps paint him in a light that was relatively unattractive, that the things that he didn't admire on the other side, he could say, well, that could easily have been me. I, 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 could, I could have that position in different circumstances. And so we see, I think in Lincoln, the kind of magnanimity that we're talking about here that moves people toward persuasion with reasoned argument and, and take seriously the possibility that the other side has an argument that they think is reasonable too. And even if on the most important questions, there's fundamental clash and nothing could be higher stakes than the kinds of debates that Lincoln was involved in. Nevertheless, to see the opponent as a human being, as a rational agent, as a moral agent, who ought to be persuaded by a good argument and who needs to be given a good argument to be persuaded, I think there's a lot there for us, for us to learn from. And again, something that we can really hopefully bring to this podcast as we, as we look behind the headlines and try to understand the nature of our political times a little bit more clearly. Well, I'm also reminded of a passage from James chapter 3, uh, James 3 verses 17 and 18, but the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. And you think about trying to pair those things, pure and then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit. In politics today, we got a lot of pure, and we got a lot of tests of pure, and we got a lot of people that failed my test and your test and the next test of pure. But we don't have a lot of peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit. And I wonder if there's a way that we can work toward that, and we can think about ways without without giving up on the pure that allow us nevertheless to move toward that harvest of righteousness that might do us all a great deal of good. Amen. Well, we're getting near the end of the show. And so we've got a couple more lighthearted segments that we're going to use to kind of wrap things up. And so when you put a couple of college professors together, and especially right after the end of a semester where we've just finished up, assigning grades to our students, we don't want to lose the habit. We don't want to get out of practice. So we're going to have to open the grade book one more time, 
each week what we're going to do is assign a grade to a person or a policy in the news. This week we're going to focus on political slogans, campaign slogans. Uh, so, you know, you think about historically the great campaign slogans that capture the candidate, capture the moment, and might even live in political memory after the candidate's been forgotten. You think about William Henry Harrison. Who's that? Uh, Tippecanoe and Tyler, too. Yeah, we remember that back in the campaign of 1840. We don't remember what Tippecanoe is, a battle um, that uh, William Henry Harrison was involved in winning. But, but Tippecanoe and Tyler, too, has lived on. Or how about Morning Again in America from 1984, Ronald Reagan's reelection campaign? Or more recently, Hope and Change, Barack Obama's rallying cry in 2008. So I want to get to Joe Biden and Donald Trump, of course, the main event in the upcoming fall campaign. But before we do that, let's just get some rapid fire thoughts on some of the slogans for campaigns that, that didn't ultimately lead to a nomination. So these are all taken from Ballotpedia, a great source for all things political. Uh, let's start with Mayor Pete. There's actually two slogans listed. Number one, a fresh start for America. Number two, win the era. What do you say, Professor? You want a grade for <clears throat> for both of those is what uh, you're asking. Yeah, give me a grade. That's what let me let me hear your reaction. I think I'd give a fresh start for America an incomplete. Uh, fresh start of what? And it's a little little vague uh, for me. Fresh face? What, fresh. I mean, Mayor Pete, what is he, 17, 18 years old, something like that? So He looks that young. That's right. That's right. But, uh, yeah, I, I'd probably stay away from, from the vague. His other quote was what? Win the era. Win the era. Wow. How about win the millennium? Or just win, win forever. Win the era. Wow. Okay. That, that actually sounds like something uh, someone young would – would think that you could just win the era. You're not just going to win the presidency. You're going to win, win the era. Uh, I'll, I'll give that, I'll give that a gentleman C. Gentleman uh, it's, it's a good thing to, to be optimistic uh, when you're young. Uh, but, but sometimes that comes at the cost of humility. So uh, a C for that, I'd say. When I run in 2032, which was my plan from when I was in second grade, um, I've already got my slogans. Me win the epic. Win the epic, okay. Yeah. We're, awesome. we're one and done. I don't, I don't you know, when you, once you get that win under your belt, there's nothing more to be done. Uh, we can just take thousands of years off and all go back to normal life. So, okay, how about Elizabeth Warren? Uh, always the overachiever. So she's got even more slogans. She's got three slogans. Number one, persist. Number two, best president money can't buy. And number three, of course, Warren has a plan for that. So maybe pick one of those out. Give us a grade. What do you think? I think the middle one, uh, best, best president uh, money can't buy. I, I actually, I, I think for her, that, that's probably uh, uh, pretty apt. It kind of uh, figures in all that she was arguing about. I don't know if it's true, but uh, certainly it'd be what her, uh, her supporters hoped of her. So I think I'd give that a B plus, uh, a minus. It's, uh, it's definitely catchy and, and uh, I think it kind of works with her. Uh, critique of uh, corporate interests. Okay. All right. Very good. Now, Bernie Sanders, Bernie Sanders, I don't have to tell you this. I know you've got it all over your bumper stickers all over your car, but Bernie's not me, us. That's what I always say to my wife when we have a disagreement and she wants to do something different than I do. I said, it's not about me. It's about us. Let's do what I want. 
not me, us. <laughs> Very good. Yeah, paid for by you, by the way, when it's Sanders. Right. Um, and I won't say who it's paid for in our household. But, uh, <laughs> but actually, you know, I, there's, there is something in that slogan, not be us. And you, you saw a whole bunch of these, right, when, when um, uh, Sanders mania took off. Uh, and there, there's something that in, encapsulates what uh, progressivism uh, or a lot of the secular humanisms are all about uh, from, say, the late 18th century, 18th century onward uh, in that expression. It, don't make it about the individual, make it about the community. Now, of course, and this is my critique of progressivism, I have many critiques of progressivism, is it doesn't account for the individual any longer. But uh, I could see how a Sanders supporter could could really buy into that. And um, it's the, the only problem, right, is is us defined in what way, us moving in what direction. Uh, and often that us uh, is, uh, is, is not an us you want to be a part of at the end of the day. All right. Now we've got some less creative ones who work our way down the list. So Amy Klobuchar, apparently on the short list, possibly for vice president, went with Amy for America. can appreciate the alliteration there, but otherwise somewhat bland. How about Wayne Messam? Wayne for America. Okay, remind us of, of Wayne's world, perhaps, back in the 80s. All right. Seth Moulton, remember him? Probably not. Seth Moulton for America. You put the last name in there. Yeah, my, my rule is if you've got to use the last name, you're probably not going to be president. Right. right. Seth, can you spell that? Is that with uh, two L's? No. Okay, one L. Uh, M-O-U. Yeah. So for America, though, I mean, that's better than the alternative, I guess. All right, so let's turn our attention to the main event. We've got Joe Biden. We've got Donald Trump. Joe Biden, our best days still lie ahead. What do you think? Too long. Too long. What's that, six words? Our best days still uh, – no, five. Yeah, you, you got to have three or four words. And still, um, it, it, it has an FDR ring to it, but um, – I don't, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm going to go C minus uh, for that one. Okay. By the way, quick, quick fact check. It is actually six words. Okay. Six just, words. Sorry. You did that extra finger. I think may have thrown okay. you off, but yeah, too long, That's right. too long. Um, and I think honestly, do you really want to be making that statement? If you're Joe Biden, are your best days ahead? Cause it doesn't feel that way when you're looking at Joe Biden. Um, so it doesn't sound that way. So I think, are you, are you wanting people to be thinking about the days ahead exactly? Um, maybe, maybe not. Uh, depending upon the VP choice, right? You could have Biden, Biden Warren, our best days are still ahead. And it would, might be like, just kind of think about when I'm no longer president and Elizabeth's president. So maybe, maybe there's something going on to that. You know? Maybe, maybe the, uh, yeah, the, the Veep choice ends up making that one work. Good. All right. Donald Trump has two slogans. Number one. Oh, we didn't get a grade for that. So what's your grade? What's your grade for Joe Biden? Uh, C minus, I would say. Yeah. C minus. Okay. I was going to give him a C plus. Um, but yeah, you know what? I think the length is going to be an issue. So I, I kind of hate to have that one be your tagline for your 30 second ad. You know, um, best day still lie ahead. Too much work to get it out. All right. So Donald Trump, keep America great, naturally. And secondly, promises made, promises kept. 
What do you think? Uh, I, I like the first one. I, I actually like the word great. Um, I know it's gone out of favor with many people, but I, I think that you ought to aspire uh, toward greatness, recognizing what your limits are. Did, does he think that it was made great in the last three and a half years? Uh, that's, that's where I really have a, an issue with that. So I, I'd give that uh, an A uh, for its intention, uh, but probably a B for its reality. Uh, the other one, I, I, I wouldn't go there because there were some promises that were made that, that weren't kept. Uh, and so I, I'd kind of stay away from that. I, I, I'd probably put that one in the, in the D range. So if I was that, on that campaign team, you know, keep America great, uh, not perfect, but good. Uh, the other one, yeah, you're going you're gonna to be fact-checked on that uh, by everyone. Well, yeah, and you might be fact-checked on the keep America great too. I'm not sure that's the slogan you want right at the moment. Uh, the great that he was hoping to be able to run on was 3.5% unemployment, stock market cruising along, peace in our time. And while the peace perhaps has persisted in some ways, tensions with China have certainly increased in the last few months. The economy is certainly struggling and will be struggling all the way through the fall campaign, we would expect. So, yeah, I mean, uh, the slogan may not exactly match the time. And it does seem when you pair it with the 2016 slogan, like we did a really big turnaround really quick. Right? If you remember him talking about the carnage of the American cities in his 2017 inaugural address to go from carnage to greatness in three years. Well, we'll see. Uh, we'll see. But I think if I were to grade that one, I think I'm at the end of a B minus. Again, I, I like, I, it's on brand, but I'm not sure that brand is quite as attractive in the present circumstances as it was when that was dreamed up among the consultants. I would, I would say this, Matt, however, to respond to that, is if we have a spirit that even in hard times, we know we can aspire to be great again, uh, I think that, that, that um, that's a good type of language to be using again. Because uh, the, the, the one term I hate right now, it's not a political slogan, is the new normal. And the new normal is, is nothing I want to be the new normal. So um, I, I think, and how do we get away from this new normal? I think it's going to take a, a desire to be great uh, and to work through issues uh, in a way with greatness and, and magnanimity at hand. All right. Fair enough. All right. So President Trump, if he focuses on keep America great scores a little bit better than his rival Joe Biden, both of us think perhaps they could do a little bit more work on the slogans, but we'll see how it all plays out in the campaign to come. Now, our last segment, we're going to call the Tocqueville's Crystal Ball. Here's how it works. Uh, Dave and I will make a prediction for the week to come. And whoever's prediction for the week is closer to the mark gets to choose the next week's Crystal Ball Challenge. Now, you can also play along with this. So you can email us your prediction at democracyinamericatoday at gmail.com. And if you do that before the challenge runs out, in this case, it's a golf match, as we'll see on Sunday, then you will, and you, and you beat us, then you'll be entered for a drawing to win a free copy of our not quite best selling book, Keeping Our Republic Principles for a Political Reformation. That's interesting. I like how you phrase that. Not quite best-selling book. I think we sold 13 copies of that book. I, I know we didn't sell is, is not the right verb. We gave away 
10 and probably sold three copies of that book. So there were several people that I think paid money for that. As I've got a, I remember cashing a royalty check that was somewhere over a dollar. So yes, it was, yeah, it's about a coffee. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's right. Well, not a New York city coffee, but it was, it was something. Yeah. But, well, but it is a great book though. I mean, just think of the value. If you tried to get that on Amazon, you'd pay $176 for it. So the, the fact that you get that by getting this right is good. Yeah, right. I mean, it's the kind of thing that's like collector's item, really, at this stage. You know, if you if you have an original copy of that book, there are not many of those out there. So anyway, you're going to want to jump on this offer. But 20, here's 2032 when you're president, that, that thing's going to be worth a lot of money. It's, so. it's going to be worth a lot of money. That's right. Yeah. And I think I'm supposed to be governor by now or senator or something. So okay. uh, a little behind the pace that I had set out for me myself back in second grade, but there's still time to catch up. And apparently being governor or senator is not that important if you want to be president anymore. So you might be able to launch from podcast to the presidency. That's going to be my campaign slogan. I think. Sounds good. Sounds good. All right. So, so here's the, here's the challenge. Not a lot of live sports going on right now. Perhaps you've noticed. So this Sunday, Tiger Woods and Peyton Manning are playing Phil Mickelson and Tom Brady in an 18-hole charity golf match. They're down there in Florida. It's Tiger Woods' home course. Uh, we've got the two great quarterbacks, the two great golfers paired up. The question is, first of all, who wins? And then what's the score? So we're playing match play. So we're looking for a number of holes for each of the pairs to win on the front nine, they're each playing their own ball, low score wins. On the back nine, it's alternate shot. So we've got 18 holes up for grabs. How many do Tiger and Peyton Manning win? I'm going to give them six and uh, give Brady and Mickelson three. And and that's not – and it has a hole up my cozy. That's not, that's not because I'm a uh, simply a Patriots fan uh, upset uh, by Tom's departure – uh, oh, that's I, part of it. Let's be fair. No, and actually, I, I'm I'm happy for him, and I'm and I'm looking forward uh, to the country have to, having to view a uh, Patriots Buccaneers uh, Super Bowl uh, for 2021. That would be a that would be a riot, uh, uh, the one for the ages. But uh, I just get the sense that uh, if, if from what I've read of, of Tom Brady, he spends about 98 percent of his time uh, preparing for football. Maybe 90 percent now that Giselle got upset. Uh, so how much golfing he's been doing uh, is is a big question mark for me. Whereas Manny, you can imagine, he's probably been practicing for about two years uh, for a match like this. And uh, I could just see them taking it uh, uh, this, this weekend. Manny's got some scores to settle, let's face it, right? He's, he's behind in the all-time series with Brady. And I'm not sure winning a charity golf match will do a lot to even the score, but you know it's better than nothing. Of course, that's true on the other side when it comes to Mickelson and, and Woods. Mickelson beaten out so many times by Tiger Woods over the years, always in Tiger's shadow. So I'm going to agree with you in terms of who's going to win. Um, I think it is going to be Tiger and Peyton Manning, but I'm going to say it's going to be four holes for Tiger and Peyton and, and two for Mickelson and Brady. So still a two-hole spread, but I think there will be more – more holes that are going to be halved. And so there will only be a few holes where somebody actually wins. Now we're going to have a tiebreaker because if we're going to have a contest, 
we can get some ties and thousands of listeners. You expect everyone to participate. This could be a mammoth thing to try to organize. So we have to have a tiebreaker. On the fifth hole, which is a par four, each player can only use one club. Interesting twist. I remember playing some golf with one club only when I was growing up. It's interesting. What club do you pick, right? So that's one question we've got. What club does Tom Brady pick? And then what's the low score on that hole? So par four, what's the low score on the hole? And what club does Tom Brady use? I'm going to go par for the score. And let's say uh, six iron. Six iron for Tom Brady. Okay. All right. Well, I agree with you on the par. I think someone's going to par this. I don't, I don't think it'll be either the quarterbacks, but I think either Tiger or Phil will figure out a way to get par on that hole. But I'm going to go out there just a little bit. I think Tom Brady, who's not really that funny, by the way. Peyton Manning is very funny. Mickelson's pretty funny. Woods has no sense of humor. Tom Brady, it's pretty weak. He's good at laughing. I think it was jokes. Uh, but that's about all he's got going. So I think he's going to try to, to add a little humor. He's going to go, kind of zig while everybody else is zagging. They're going to expect Peyton Manning to do the kind of zany stuff. But I think Tom Brady's going to pull out the putter on that wow. hole okay. and, and wail away at that thing and, and probably, you know, hit it into the trees and score eight or whatever. But, but I think he's going to try, try the putter and, and just try to lighten the mood a little bit. So I'm going to, I'm going to take that as, as my prediction. Um, someone else will score par, but I think Brady's going to try to, to be the jokester, at least for one hole. Um, otherwise I think you'll have to give up that title to the other, the other competitors. Should right. be fun. Should be fun. It's going to be a good time. Yeah, it's going to be a good time. And hopefully more real live sports sometime soon, right? We've got baseball Please. talking Please. about that. We've got, we've got all kinds of sports that are making their plans, but no one's quite pulled the trigger unless you're a huge Bundesliga fan, German soccer out there. I know you follow that closely, Dave. But, but for the rest of us – Bayern Munich, yes. Yeah. So. Okay. Well, that's, you at least got one team named down. That's pretty good. So for the rest of us – Right, we'd like to see some sports return. We'd like to have to not predict the scores of celebrity golf matches, just saying. All right. Well, that's gonna wrap it up for us for this first show. Thanks for being along with us. We will be back with you next week with more headlines, required reading. Open the gray book once again and a crystal ball. You can follow us on Spotify. You can get our podcast on Apple Podcasts. You can get us on Google Play. And we look forward to hearing from you once again, Democracy in America Day at gmail.com. Thanks very much. Take care and God bless. Good.